Welcome to the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, the nation's key nonpartisan policy forum for tackling global issues through independent research, open dialogue, and informing actionable ideas for the policy community. This is a Wilson Center special event hosted by our experts and scholars. Be sure to check out our other media, videos, audio, and podcasts at wilsoncenter.org. Good day, everybody. I'm James Jeffrey, the chair of the Middle East program here at the Wilson Center. And it's my honor today to help moderate this important event involving the Abraham Accords. Most of us follow the Middle East, and it is often one not very good story after another, but occasionally we have good stories, and the Abraham Accords is one such. This is an initiative taken by the peoples of the region, supported by the United States, but again, by the peoples of the region and their governments, to promote, to quote from the basic document, the principles, peace, security, and prosperity in this region on the basis of reconciliation, understanding, cooperation, and dialogue between the three Abrahamic religions and the people of them in the region. This is an extraordinarily important uh, event. Uh, as one who has been involved in the Middle East one way or the other since the Yom Kippur War of 1973, I am much encouraged by this. And now it is my honor to introduce the President and CEO of the Wilson Center, Ambassador Mark Green. Mr. Ambassador. Thanks, Jim. And uh, welcome, everyone, to the Wilson Center and this special occasion, a moment for marking and celebrating good news, the successful first year for the Abraham Accords. You know, if there's an ebb and flow to human history, I think we all have the sense that the pages are turning a little more rapidly these days. And the developments are too often more motion than progress. That means that there's so much going on, it seems, that we often fail to give success its proper due, even when that success shows glimpses of a more peaceful and more hopeful future. And so we at the Wilson Center are, are truly grateful to be hosting the ambassadors and representatives of the UAE, Bahrain, Israel, who are joining us here today to mark this important occasion. We're also grateful for the DCM of the Embassy of Morocco, as well as the ambassador from Sudan, who's observing today's ceremonies remotely. I'm also delighted that my friend and former colleague and former House Majority Leader Eric Cantor is joining us here today. Eric, it is truly great to see you. And my friend and former colleague Eliana Ross-Leitden, former chairwoman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Eliana, great to see you. Uh, we'll also be joined a little later on by another good friend and former House colleague, Congressman Ted Deutsch. Roughly a year ago, the United Arab Emirates and Kingdom of Bahrain became the first two Arab Gulf countries in 26 years to establish diplomatic relations with Israel. The Abraham Accords were signed by President Trump at a White House ceremony on September 15, 2020. Later that year, two other key countries in the region followed suit, Sudan and Morocco raising the number of Arab states with former diplomatic ties to Israel from two to six. We all hope that the Accords are pointing the way to a new normal in Arab-Israeli relations, with travel established between those countries and Israel, 
official delegations representing the governments as, as well as the private sector signing new agreements for investment, science, and innovation. Just last month, the embassies of the UAE and Bahrain opened in Israel, and new ambassadors arrived. The Biden administration has not only said it will support the Abraham Accords, but it will look to more, urge more countries to join in and normalize their relations with Israel as well. Again, all of these are hopeful signs. The Abraham Accords will be instrumental in strengthening diplomatic ties, but they can also boost cultural and economic ties as well. Increasing trade and investment in each, other, each other's countries means giving each other a stake in the future, a shared future of prosperity and shared opportunity, and not just for the region. As the former administrator of the U.S. Agency for International Development, uh, I would suggest that the Accords could also boost development prospects in other regions of the world. In my USAID days, we signed MOUs with Israel and the UAE to take advantage of their expertise and influence, the advantage that they have in many parts of the world, not only in the Middle East, but in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. On the security front, we are all aware of our naval base hosted by Bahrain, both strategically important, but also a, a symbol of our enduring partnership and friendship with the kingdom. All of this is very much in line with the accords and the language that calls for a vision of peace, security, and prosperity in the Middle East and all around the world. And so I want to thank our guests for being here today. And it is now my honor to welcome and introduce another good friend and former House colleague, Congressman Ted Deutsch. As you know, Ted is the chairman of the Middle East, North Africa, and Global Town, uh, Terrorism Subcommittee of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Mr. Chairman, it's great to have you here today, and please, we invite you to make some remarks. Uh, thanks, thanks very much, uh, Ambassador Green, Ambassador Jeffrey. Thanks to the Wilson Center for hosting today's program and for inviting me to be a part of it. Uh, it I would also join you, Ambassador Green, in acknowledging uh, our good friends, uh, Eric and Ileana. It's so nice to see you both. Uh, it's an honor also to appear today with my friends, Ambassador Taiba, Ambassador Khalifa, uh, Ambassador Erdan, I believe, virtually, and uh, DCM Krasna. I look forward to what I know will be a very insightful conversation between them. We're here, it is just about one year ago uh, that many of us gathered at the White House for the historic signing of the Abraham Accords, which was truly a day many of us had envisioned for decades, but couldn't really imagine it coming to fruition in the, in the near term. These historic accords, followed by agreements with Morocco and Sudan, have fundamentally changed the region in the most positive of ways. It is not often in Washington these days, I think Ileana and Eric would acknowledge this, that there is broad bipartisan support for an initiative among members of Congress and among successive administrations of differing parties. That's why what is so wholly unique, that is what is so wholly unique about the Abraham Accords, it provided a transformative, a positive lens through which we can all now look at what is sometimes a challenging region. In fact, in Congress, we have legislation pending with now over 200 bipartisan co-sponsors that would acknowledge the State Department's uh, positive statements and would require the State Department to seek to build upon 
the current normalization agreements and report on ways to further enhance the existing agreements. Over the past years, past year, I've spoken to business groups, I've spoken to people-to-people -people organizations so committed to seeing these agreements bear fruit in real and tangible ways, bringing the quiet contacts that have existed among people for years into the open signals the potential for regional cooperation no longer just rooted in shared security concerns, but in benefits to Israelis, Emiratis, Bahrainis, Moroccans, and hopefully eventually as well to Palestinians. I can't tell you how honored I am to be marking the one-year anniversary of the Abraham Accords, and I so look forward to continuing to work with all of you to build upon and advance these agreements further. Thank you very much. Mr. Chairman, thank you very much. Uh, we'll begin the uh, rest of the uh, event with uh, prepared remarks by Ambassador Sheikh Khalifa and then a um, video uh, introduction <coughs> by Ambassador Erdan. So, Ambassador, please. Ambassador, thank you for giving the, the floor. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here uh, along with my colleagues, Ambassador Teba and DCM from the State of Israel's embassy here in D.C. Uh, I think I'll uh, withhold a lot of what I have in mind for the conversation. Thank you for giving me the floor, though. Okay. Thank you very much for being here. So we'll now have the prepared remarks by uh, video by Ambassador Erdan. Distinguished guests and friends, shalom. I'm sorry I couldn't be with you all in person. And thank you to the Wilson Center for holding this fantastic event. As we approach the one-year anniversary of the historic Abram Accords, it is important to recognize just how significant this moment really is. One year ago, Israel, the UAE, and Bahrain met on the White House lawn to cement a new future for the Middle East. And just a few short months later, Israel reached groundbreaking agreements with Morocco and Sudan as well. Together, we chose peace, progress, and prosperity over our past differences. We chose to work together to change the way Jews and Arabs perceive each other to promote mutually beneficial economic activity and to face the larger challenges in the Middle East as a united front. However, one year ago, those were just declarations. It's a little like a marriage. You have the big wedding, the party, you make vows to one another, but the real test of any marriage is what happens next, when the cameras are off, and the celebration is over. Can you really work together to build a lasting partnership? I'm glad to say that one year later, it is clear these agreements have gone well beyond their important symbolism. We have used this defining first year to guarantee that our partnership will last for generations to come. What is so unique about the Abram Accords is that both the governments and the peoples are embracing one another. Our governments have made lots of progress already. 
We have inaugurated embassies in each other's cities, signed deals promoting collaboration on culture, trade, climate and technological innovation. Israel will have one of the largest pavilions at the Dubai Expo and travelers can now fly directly from Tel Aviv to Marrakesh or Abu Dhabi. In fact, the UAE is now the first Arab country that Israelis can visit without a visa and vice versa, of course. These steps are critical to laying the groundwork for a long-term meaningful relationship. And our peoples are taking advantage of all these incredible opportunities, building warm partnerships and close friendships. They are learning each other's languages and realizing how much the sons of Abram truly have in common as they share a kosher meal in Dubai or Manama. Israelis and Moroccans are kite surfing together along the coasts of the Sahara Desert. And just a couple of weeks ago, the first Israeli child was born in Dubai. Our universities are establishing exchange programs so that the next generation of Israelis, Bahrainis, Moroccans and Emiratis can study alongside one another and tackle the world's most pressing challenges together. You know, like many in Israel, I grew up thinking that our neighboring countries hated us. Today, so much has changed. Jewish kids want to learn Arabic and travel throughout the Middle East to get to know their neighbors. The younger generations in the region, both Jews and Arabs across political divides and ideological differences, will grow up in a new reality where Israel and our neighbors can live in peace and prosperity. And I would like to take this opportunity to thank our dear allies, the United States, for the instrumental role they played in bringing us together and for their continued efforts to expand our circle of peace. This transformation will have a lasting effect on our nations, as well as on others in our region, who we hope will join us very, very soon. Perhaps even the Palestinian youth, as they see the fruits of our collaboration, will be encouraged to end their leadership's rejectionism and join Israel at the negotiating table. Friends, on the one-year anniversary of the Abram Accords, I can confidently say that we have built the foundation for a new era in the Middle East. I have no doubt this is just the beginning. I thank again the Wilson Center for hosting this event and I'm confident that we will share many more events celebrating our incredible progress in the future. Thank you. We much appreciate Ambassador Erdogan's contribution. Uh, we'll now open it up for discussions uh, among the members of the panel. Uh, the first question to uh, uh, Ambassador Yusuf Aloteba and then to Ambassador uh, Sheikh Abdullah uh, Al-Khalid, and that is, 
uh, Ambassador Eden talked about after the vows, after the ceremonies are over, you need to flesh out these accords with real developments. I was, and he gave us a few. I was particularly taken by the first Israeli baby born in the Emiratis. Congratulations. But from the standpoint of your leadership, what are the key things that have changed in the last year? We'll start with you, Yusuf. Thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Ambassador Green. Uh, first of all, congratulations to the couple that had the baby, not, not to us. <laughs> uh, uh, Bad action. <laughs> um, I think the thing that has changed the most is people's understandings. And it's hard to measure. It's easy to measure trade. It's easy to measure, you know, uh, investments or deals or how many flights and how many tourists. It's hard to explain how people's mindsets have shifted. It's easier to observe stories. Like I, when I saw, when I started seeing Orthodox Jewish weddings taking place in Dubai during COVID, during uh, a very difficult time socially, in a country that most of these people have never been, they decided to pack up, take their families and have a wedding in this place that they've only seen on TV or on the internet. That's the biggest change I've envisioned, or I've seen. Um, I think about two or three months in, post the uh, signing of signing ceremony on September 15th, I find out that our Emirates Diplomatic Academy, where our young diplomats get trained, are actually teaching Hebrew. And it's actually a very popular decision or a very popular choice. These are the things that I think will fundamentally change our region. But if you want to go back to the economics and the business and the data points, uh, I was coming in here this morning and I read an article on Bloomberg that said our Minister of Economy, who's in town, uh, told a Bloomberg reporter that he envisions over 10 years that bilateral trade and investment between the UAE and Israel will reach a trillion dollars. So I thought he made a mistake, and I thought he meant a billion dollars. I reread the article. I was like, no, he didn't make a mistake. He actually said a trillion dollars. I thought about it, and there's no way two small countries can reach a trade relationship of a trillion dollars where it doesn't spill over, where it doesn't benefit Palestine, Jordan, Lebanon, and Egypt, where it doesn't open tech transfer, where it doesn't create jobs. So I think this is a very big net positive, whether it's on the social and human to people-to-people -people human interactions and understanding or on data, trade, and jobs, and business, and investments that are ultimately going to be a benefit for the region. So, yes, it's only a year in, but every indicator and in just, in just human interactions or business dealings, I think it's, we're just skimming the surface. Thank you very much. Ambassador? Again, um, uh, thank you very much for having, for having me here. Uh, and I second what uh, my colleague Ambassador Ateba just said. Uh, obviously, the shift in mindset is probably the biggest uh, thing that we are witnessing within the communities today. Uh, the measurables are very important because they're KPIs. They put us on track. Uh, obviously, we've seen um, trade grow, uh, bilateral relations fostered. People-to-people uh, -people relationships being established and and growing with time. Uh, we've also seen a new me medium that's been created for dialogue, for understanding, which is very important for uh, a region that has been volatile in the past. Um, the the exchange of ambassadors is very significant. I come from a country uh, where yes, we do have a lot of positive relationships with many countries around the world, but that doesn't mean that we have representation. Mm -hmm. um, take, for example, myself. Um, I'm a, 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 I represent my country in three other countries, uh, one of them being a, a, a G8 country. 
but here we are with representation in Israel and vice versa, which means that uh, our leaders do want to take it to the next phase. It means that when we came into this, we came into this with the mindset that we need a war and peace strategy that's put in place to grow with time. And um, honestly speaking, this is uh, probably the biggest breakthrough between Arabs and Jews in the past 25 years. I think that, uh, yes, it's, it does take us a step closer to uh, comprehensive peace in the region. And uh, I think it also sets an example for others within the region itself. I mean, here you have peace that's being achieved between Arabs and Jews that sets a very good foundation for peace that can be developed by others that share the region, whether they're Persians, Turks, Kurds, etc. So that's why I think the, uh, the accords are very important for the region as a whole, and we need to make it a success. Thank you very much. And we're sure that uh, the fact that you're representing multiple G8 nations is more a reflection of the kingdom's uh, uh, confidence in you than a shortage of Bahraini diplomats. But uh, over to you, Benjamin Krasna. Um, the uh, basic principles document talks in general terms, as I said, of peace, security, prosperity, and uh, it criticizes extremism and uh, conflict, but it doesn't get specific. But let's get a little bit more specific here. Uh, the geostrategic situation within which it has developed over the last year, particularly the U.S.-Iranian relationship, what impact does it have on the Accords and what impact does the Accords have on it? And this is, of course, something I would really be delighted if our other two participants could uh, uh, chime in on. Please, over to you. Thank you very much, Ambassador and Ambassador Green, for hosting us. Um, I, I think that it shows the changing geographic and geopolitical um, realities in the region. Um, understanding what can be done as a partnership, what can be done um, together, um, what can be done as you start building up confidence and trust, which to be fair, had existed for a long time before um, 15 of September. Um, there was always, there had been for a long time private discussions, there had been for a, uh, it's now known for a while, the representatives of the foreign ministry who had been in these countries and had been ongoing dialogue, obviously. Um, the big change, of course, was bringing it out into the open um, and creating what now is, seems so normal. Um, if we talked, or you were saying that some had er said to me earlier that it's hard to believe it's been a year, and I say, well, it's hard to believe that it's only been a year. I said, because so much has, has been achieved that sometimes it would take much, much longer. I think what we're looking also, though, obviously, is a sharing in the similar, of similar strategic concerns. You speak about the extremism, of course. You, sing, you speak about fanaticism and how that, how that changes um, and how really that impacts how much more we can get by working together. Um, you know, uh, we look obviously at Iran, okay, and we see the strategic concern that I think all of us share. Um, different geography, maybe sometimes on different, on different viewpoints, but understanding um, that to provide defense against that, there's more, to be benefit, there's more benefit to be gained by working together, uh, by sharing concerns, by sharing information, by understanding what we're dealing with, not only there. Um, and there obviously there are other sources in the region and uh, obviously um, looking at the role of other fanatic organizations like ISIS and why that has to be a concern. What are the technologies that we have to be facing together today? Uh, we've seen, unfortunately, examples with the dangers of UAV technology. 
We've seen, we obviously have understand more and more about the danger of, of cyber technology. And we as a world leader in cyber and cybersecurity, understanding how that is something that can be shared and so that should be a shared concern. And I think that's something that we have seen come more in the open. I think something that has tremendous potential so that we should all build an area where if we don't have um, the stability and the security in the same sense, it becomes much harder to build much of what we're discussing. I mean, what's remarkable is when you hear, and I share uh, Ambassador Oteba talk about the potential. Well, the one billion were probably there already next year. Yeah. This year was 700 million, and, and of course you're, you've already invested now, I believe about 500 million in some of our gas infrastructure, yeah. which is a tremendous, tremendous development that's hard, that's hard to uh, imagine just a, just a year ago. But as we look, you need to also be able to build confidence for the investment to be confidence in the, in the investment environment. And the security becomes such a major uh, point of how we can best realize it. And I think that's why we are also committed to working together also to address the threats and the concerns. Thank you very much. Um, Ambassador Erdogan, in his comments, uh, specifically mentioned uh, the accords in the spirit of them eventually expanding to bring in Palestinian youth. One of the criticisms that... Uh, some people here in America and elsewhere uh, raised concerning the Accords a year ago was that it put the Israeli-Palestinian question on a sidetrack compared to other issues in the region. Uh, how do all of you see uh, the Accords perhaps helping uh, advance that particular portfolio? So I still think that the two-state solution is the only game in town. Mm -hmm. I don't see, no matter how much time you spend thinking about this and dealing with this issue, that there's no long-term solution other than the two-state solution. But let's backtrack a little behind a year ago. And if we had not successfully reached the Abraham Accords, what would have happened? Israel would have probably annexed part of the Palestinian territories. The two-state solution would be dead. And so I don't think having, if, if the Abraham Accords had not happened, we would not be talking about a potential two-state solution. We'll be very blunt. I think we salvaged the two-state solution. I think it's very important for the two parties to decide that this is the ultimate game plan. It's not for us. But I also remind you, when Egypt made peace with Israel, there were no concessions for the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. When Jordan made peace with Israel, there were no concessions for the Palestinians. This is probably the biggest concession that was reached for the Palestinian cause in the last 20, 25 years. Um, I hope, I hope, I think we are in a very broad group where we are continuously advocating for the two-state solution. And for those who are saying that the Abraham Accords were not durable or did not serve the Palestinians, I can tell you, and I think uh, DCM understands, that my foreign minister spoke with Foreign Minister Lapid six times, uh, sorry, with uh, Foreign Minister Ashkenazi six times during the Gaza operation. And at every single phone call, we urged Israel to accept the Egyptian uh, uh, ceasefire proposal. So I think the Abraham Accords can be helpful, can be useful, can provide words of wisdom and advice, but ultimately it's going to come to the two states to decide that the two-state solution is in their interest, not just ours. Thank you very much. Ambassador Khalifa. Yeah, I mean, again, on, on many occasions, um, Bahrain has uh, publicly showed the commitment to building a long-lasting peace in the region. When it comes to the Palestinian-Israeli issue, we've been committed to supporting a viable and an independent Palestinian state. We've stated it from um, the, the, the South Lawn when our foreign minister was here, 
we do believe in a, a two-state solution. Um, the Palestinians have the right to their state like the Israelis have the right uh, to their state. Um, and I think what uh, we're doing here is we have created that medium. We know that we will uh, have challenges down the road. Uh, there will be rough patches, but when it gets tough, um, there are those uh, communication channels that are open uh, that diffuse the situation. And when you compare what happened um, in Gaza, from Gaza, uh, to what happened 2014, there's a, a big difference in the way that uh, casualties, uh, there's a lot less casualties than before, timing was much shorter, uh, and so I think that there was uh, an important role for countries in the courts uh, that played a significant um, uh, role in reducing tensions. Uh, and again, um, it's important for us to uh, showcase success. Uh, for us uh, in Bahrain, we've been a crossroads of coexistence for many, many uh, decades, and, and uh, we've uh, been able to make it work. So um, are there ways in which um, countries and leaders can foster uh, tolerism and openness? Yes, there are. And those examples need to be highlighted and showcased to, to people in the region to showcase success and to instill hope within those communities. Thank you very much. Uh, DCM Krasna, uh, what steps uh, within the framework of the Abraham Accords do you think Israel can take to uh, move towards the vision of Ambassador Erdogan of someday bringing in Palestinian youth into this whole construct? Thank you. Well, as, as you know, in Ambassador Erdogan's book, we're always hopeful. We're always prepared to engage and to promote the peace. I think it is vital for our interests. Um, and I think it's something that also the Palestinian young people that you speak of, they certainly deserve. I think when they look at what what was achieved last year historically and in previous years, obviously, with Jordan, with Egypt, they see that there's an alternative. I think that's one of the most important messages that comes out from the Abraham Accords is understanding that it's not one or the other. And to understand that you have potential to build peace, that there does not have to be a given um, animosity between a Jew and an Arab or a Muslim and a Jew. It doesn't have to be. There, we have a possibility here of prosperity, of mutual coexistence, of tolerance um, that was spoken about in terms of the, the kosher meals that are now available in Dubai and in, and in Manama. And we saw the, uh, the bar mitzvah celebration. And, um, you know, it should be understood that there's a benefit that may be passing them by, and it doesn't have to, that they can come on board. I think that's the message that we hope that these young people see and reach out in terms of their, their leadership. So we're prepared, and Minister Lapid spoke about it just yesterday in, in, in Israel, working more on promoting uh, economic cooperation, doing more in terms of economic development, um, welcoming partnership with our friends in the region to work on these goals, to invest in improving the economic situation, to invest in the training, to invest on empowering the youth so that we can build really an atmosphere of peace. But we also have to remember that even for the Palestinians, okay, or maybe even especially for the Palestinians, okay, they need the security cooperation and they need for their own purposes as well for us in the region to commitment to fight terror. And that remains something that has to be very strongly said and understand that those are the alternatives. You, don't, you can't do both.
And I think that this is a, why the message that we're seeing from the from the Abraham Accords, from the other progress that we will hope be made in the future, um, is something that really penetrates the Palestinian society, and they understand to embrace, and they demand their leadership. This is what we want. Thank you very much. Uh, so far, I've been good and disciplined. I think Eddie will agree in sticking to the questions we shared with you, but now I have to deviate a bit. What would each of you and your countries want from the United States, which, of course, has been a partner in launching this thing a year ago, to further develop the Abraham Accords? We'll start with you. Uh, I think we have to collectively, collectively talk about the region. We have mm -hmm. to collectively talk about strategic issues, but we also collectively have to talk about trade. Mm -hmm. So right now, uh, I think this is actually has begun. We are discussing and negotiating a free trade agreement with the state of Israel. Okay. Our estimates think maybe 10 to 12 months we'll get it concluded, but there's absolutely no reason how the U.S. should not be thinking about ways to plug into that free trade agreement. Just imagine free trade between Israel, U.S., UAE, to imagine technology transfer, imagine climate research, imagine space cooperation. There is so much to be had if we expand our bilateral channels into a trilateral channel with the United States, whether on strategic issues or on business and economic issues. So I think these are, you know, the, that's the first thing I think of right now. Sure. Ambassador Lufa. Yeah, well, to start out, I think that there needs to be um, a, a continuous commitment from the United States to acknowledge the accords and to move forward, um, no matter who's in office. Uh, this is a uh, once-in-a-lifetime in a, in a kind of uh, deal, and uh, I think a lot has been achieved in one year, and a lot can be achieved in the years to come, and the U.S.'s involvement is critical. Uh, I also think that there are opportunities of multilateral uh, approaches where if the United States was to look at ways in which uh, member nations can uh, uh, either get access to some of the, the, the services that the United States has with other countries or that has, let's say, it's more trade-related. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there are advantages in which we can uh, kind of create a special group of countries <coughs> in which they're getting a, uh, a special treatment from the United States, uh, whether it's in trade or other areas. Uh, that will probably keep the ball rolling. It's going to have more countries joining. And uh, that's the ultimate, uh, one of the ultimate goals of the Accords is to enlarge the group and for those members to, to benefit out of uh, each other collectively. Thank you. Benjamin. Again, uh, I, I totally concur with, with my colleagues here. And obviously understanding um, what are our concerns what are the shared concerns? And recognize that it's not just one of the countries speaking about that concern, but if you hear it, you may hear the same tune in multiple capitals in the region and understand that and then figure out how we, the best way to address it, promote it, maybe to create cooperation on some of, on some of these issues, to hear what it is that the countries want and to, to be in tuned with what it is that we want. And then I think also from our perspective, very, very important, and I would, I would almost say that it's probably important for, for Bahrain and UAE to extend it, mm -hmm. to show a commitment not only to what exists, but a commitment to moving it forward. I, that how would bring others on board? How do we create a more normal region? Because we talk now today about two Gulf countries, but the potential is obviously larger than that. 
And I think that that commitment is something that we would hope can be um, extended and empowered to do in the coming years. This is a key uh, issue. Uh, two of you have just raised it. It's also a delicate issue. So I'm going to pose the question in two ways. Um, to expand this extraordinary coalition, if you will, they say misery likes company while success likes company more. Uh, I'll give you two questions related to that, and you can answer uh, whichever one you want or both. Uh, which countries do you see would be the next candidates to join? Or, alternatively, what conditions do you think the Abraham Accords members, which includes the United States as one of the original signatories, should set that would encourage other countries that may or may not be named to join? Uh, you can do it either way, uh, Yusuf. So the truth is I don't, I don't know if there's any particular countries that are engaged right now with the mm -hmm. United States or at least considering this. I don't know. I know in the past, uh, at least right after we made our announcement, there were several other countries. I'm not sure if they want to be known, so I'm not comfortable you know, disclosing who they are. But several countries came to us and said, hey, how did this happen? What did you do? How did you negotiate? So there was interest. I, I think because there's new governments here, there's new governments in Israel, people kind of wait in see mode. But I'll say what I've said back then, which is if you really want other countries to consider this seriously, first, it's on us and, mm -hmm. and the United States including, included to demonstrate that this has been a successful experiment. Right. Right? To say that, hey, this is really working. This is good for the region. This is good for the societies in the region. This is good for peace. So we have to do that, and we have to do that consistently, and we have to do that, like Sheikh Abdullah said, in a very bipartisan fashion. That's what will get other countries' attention, mm -hmm. is that this is being welcomed by everyone in the United States. That's a great way to encourage countries who are thinking about it, and it's also a great way to discourage countries who are. Who are. So it, we have to show that we are all in and that this is a proven to be a successful model if uh, we want other countries to seriously consider it. Bipartisan, welcomed by everybody here in the United States. That's a pretty concrete suggestion you're making to have this expanded, so thank you. Yeah, I, I, really, I mean, in my conversations, I have not seen much criticism of the Accords. I have seen a lot of energy and excitement, and I've seen sort of, in all of my conversation with the Biden administration, this has been welcomed, this has been supported, this has been a great breakthrough. We almost had an event in Abu Dhabi where we had Israeli officials and Emirati officials at one point. So I, I don't doubt that there is support. Mm -hmm. Now we have to demonstrate that support. Right. I think I'll be saying the same thing, but if I would um, shift the answer a little bit to what are the mechanisms that can ensure success. Uh, it's obviously a multifaceted approach that we have to look at uh, the bilateral relations between the two countries. So um, yes, there's a government-to-government -government, uh, uh, component that has been um, w working very well. Uh, a number of MOUs have been signed, uh, but on a people-to-people -people level, there were so many different initiatives uh, that were launched in the past year that have brought people together. And I think that's what's important. It's important to look at, yes, government to government, trade, uh, private sector trade, but also on a people to people level. Um, take, for example, um, an association that was developed, Association for Gulf Jewish Communities. Um, they've been very active. They've been bringing together Jews from the GCC for different events throughout the year. Um, we've been on a couple of uh, events with them, and uh, it, it creates a ripple effect. Um, I was talking to uh, someone two days ago, and uh, for Rosh Hashanah, um, 
the one of the Jewish families in Bahrain started sending packages of honey and pomegranate to Muslims in Bahrain. And mm -hmm. it's those small success stories that build lasting relationships and understanding as well in in our part of the world. Yeah. Thank you. Also, Please. there's there's one more opportunity coming up, and and it's you know the Abraham Accords is going to fundamentally change how it actually gets done, which is the expo where mm -hmm. the Israeli cover country has a very impressive pavilion being built, well, it's already built. But pre-Abraham Accords, it was going to look very nice, but not many Israelis were going to be able to visit it. But today, anyone in Israel can get a flight to Dubai and go visit Expo, which is going to last from the beginning of October to uh, end of March, and where we expect about 20 to 25 million visitors. And Israel will be physically and literally on the map and available for everyone to see. Mm -hmm. that, that, I think, will have a big impact. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there are things like that. There are things like Jewish holidays and the, the vibrant and growing Jewish community in the UAE. Uh, if you take your big collective analysis of all this, th this is good for the region, this is good for the United States, and this is good for all our people. Thank you. Uh, one of the questions we got uh, most frequently from the audience uh, was, uh, how does this impact people-to-people -people relations? And I think you've all three, as well as Ambassador Adan, been doing a good job describing that. Uh, uh, Benjamin, uh, what can Israel do to encourage more cooperation with other countries? And uh, as a little hook on that, you've had long-term relationships with three important uh, Middle Eastern countries, uh, Jordan, Egypt, and Turkey. How do they fit into this new group of friends you have? Knowing you well, Ambassador Jeffrey, I was waiting to see if you were going to put Turkey in the <laughs> <laughs> um, But But let, let me start. First of all, I think that we have to remember, and uh, you know, coincidentally, today's September 13th. Today, September 13th, of course, is the anniversary of the signing of the Oslo Accords. Um, we already saw in the past the potential of other countries being on board. Okay, there were, there were many more at the time. It was not UAE in Bahrain. Things have changed. And today, um, in a much stronger way, in a much stronger people-to-people -people basis, we have the, the peace and the normal relations with, uh, with UAE and Bahrain. So we know that there is potential out there, and we know that there is, there is will. We also know, by the way, to be fair, it extends beyond the Middle East region. For us, it certainly extends. There are countries in, in Asia, very, very large Muslim countries mm -hmm. in Asia, which would be tremendous breakthrough if they would be brought on board, on board, brought on board, uh, brought on board as well. I, I think, and I totally agree here, that the importance of the people to people, because the people to people is builds the strong, much stronger foundation. It makes it a warm peace, not a cold peace. It honestly probably is what gives leaders confidence. Because a leader has to have confidence. These are brave decisions that these leaders took. Okay, we should never underestimate the role of the leaders who made these decisions. But these leaders also had public underneath. And there's always a question, and we say, but what will happen in the street? How will the street react? Well, we saw the street's embracing it. And the fact that the street embraces it sends a huge message to the leadership and to other leaders in the world that they can have confidence because they've seen the precedent that's been, that's been taken. And so, again, I think that's what gives us a high level of confidence that more can be achieved. It's certainly something that we are committed to engaging in, whether it has to start off quietly and confidentially, but then move on to something more and more dramatic and, and diplomatic. There's so much that we can offer as well in terms of our technological abilities, in terms of dealing with scarce resources like water, in terms of dealing with the, all of us have to deal with the combating of climate change today. All of this becomes part of it. Cyber, health, look what's going on with the world trying today to deal with corona. 
and the coronavirus. One of the remarkable things is how much we've achieved in an environment of corona. Um, and so again, we can offer a lot. We are prepared to go there, and we look forward to embracing many more countries in this effort. Thank you, and I hope that uh, Israel can take relations with the United States, particularly people-to-people -people relations and relations, for example, with our own parliament, our Congress. We have four current former members uh, of Congress here uh, with us today as an example to build on because we very much appreciate not only the state-to-state -state, but the people-to-people -people relations uh, with Israel as well as to both of your countries, and this is something we can build on. Uh, we have a few more minutes. Uh, I think that we've gone through most of the questions. Uh, so why don't I turn it over to the three of you to summarize where we are and where we're going to be. Where would you like to see this going in the next few years uh, to achieve the goals in the uh, Declaration of Prosperity, mm. Peace, and Security? So first, I think, let me, I'll separate the two categories I want to analyze. One, I think from government to government standpoint, I had absolutely no doubt that we were going to negotiate free trade agreements or visa-free travel or make investments. So that is going fairly in sync with my expectations. The part that has exceeded my expectations is the people-to-people, -people. Mm -hmm. the amount of business, the amount of tourism, the amount of trade, the, the fact that an Emirati young lady chose to go study uh, university in Israel. That wasn't a government decision. <laughs> no one forced her make to go there. Mm -hmm. She actually probably learned Hebrew and decided she wants to go study in Israel. Um, when we do research on you know, medical issues or when you do business deals, uh, these are the things that to me have... A, you went from a, a starting position where there was no business, no business dealings, to a potential within a decade of $1 trillion. So that didn't exist pre-Abraham Accords. To me, that has exceeded my expectation. And I think, I, I compare this to how I grew up, where in Egypt, you grew up thinking Israel is the adversary. And we, I, on my way to school every day, I drove by the Israeli ambassador's house in, in Egypt. Um, you grow up programmed a certain way. And when I think of my son, he's not going to be programmed. That He's not going to think Israel is the adversary. He's not going to think that it's taboo to do business with Israelis. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think... To me, that is going to be the biggest breakthrough, the, the mindset, the attitude, the way people perceive Israel. And whether it's because a young woman went to study there or Israelis came to Expo, I, I think all of these matter a lot more than we really realize today. And here we are on the verge of one year, and I still think that there's a lot more potential for these understandings to kind of break down and accept each other. Look, we can have political differences on the Palestinian issue. We can have a disagreement on a policy issue doesn't mean we hate each other. It doesn't mean we does, don't understand each other. So I think, that's, I think we're heading in the right direction. Thank you. Jacob Dillon. Uh, I think as, as time goes by, um, the most important uh, feature is going to be trust. And as we move forward with those different relationships that are being built, whether in the private sector or the public sector, it takes a little bit of time for trust-building measures to be put in place and we move forward. Uh, I think that we're hitting the right industries, per se. Um, one of them, for example, being the medical field, where we just signed an exchange program for training, innovation, and research. But what will that lead to? It will lead to Jews operating on Arabs and Arabs operating on Jews. 
And I think that kind of trust as we move forward is um, what's going to change with time. Thank you very much. Anyway. So first I want to come back to the previous question because I do believe that it's so important to mark and remember about about the achievements that were made in the peace treaty with Egypt and with Jordan. Mm -hmm. I think that the fact that these have been lasting are, are, are key, important, and I think that there's an interaction that will now exist that we'll see developing um, between our new our new friends and our new colleagues mm -hmm. and and the old ones as well and hopefully have a they have a mutually um, enriching positive positive effect um, you know as we were looking before coming here and, and talking today and we have 55 different agreements under discussion between Israel and the two countries here 26 have been signed okay obviously we're looking forward to the day when we can realize the, the free a free trade agreement and it'll be a huge achievement going forward in terms of what it means we also look in terms of what it means in terms of the travel the ability today to travel from israel to asia for business for tourism has changed dramatically mm -hmm. and we're going to see those hubs in abu dhabi and dubai and manama um, as we move forward and maybe down the road in some other capitals capitals as well so it's remarkable i think the next level up and we're going to work on this because I know we're already talking about it, is how we work together multilaterally. Mm. And I think that that's something that in the next coming years we're going to address, whether it be at the UN or whether it be in other international forum, how we work together, how we work together to address regional challenges mm. using our expertise, our knowledge, our language, how we work together in doing, working on global challenges, okay? Illiteracy, okay, which was something that needs to be, needs to be addressed. Empowerment and youth empowerment, addressing disease. When we start doing these things together, and I'm confident we're, going, we're talking about them and that we're going to make it happen already in the coming year and years to come, that's going to be the next level where we're going to look together as a resource that others are going to look to us, please come and provide us with direction, assistance, show us how to improve our own lives. Thank you. Uh, I'm emerging from this much more optimistic that the people-to-people, -people, the social, the political, uh, economic and cultural aspects of uh, this coming together at the political level uh, is advancing apace, and that gives us all a lot of encouragement. On behalf of the Wilson Center, I'd like to thank all three, our three-plus virtually, Ambassador Erdogan, uh, panelists, for your contributions, and we wish you the very best in this endeavor and in everything else that your countries are doing to preserve, again, peace, prosperity, and security in the region and the world. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jim. It's great to be with you. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this Wilson Center special event. This has been a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Be sure to check out more of the Wilson Center's activities, media, and events at wilsoncenter.org.